Good morning. We are in Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus 10 is our passage. We're looking at the first five verses. I've been at the Master Seminary for the last two years, and one of the things I've realized is that seminarians getting opportunities to preach and teach isn't always something that's made available to guys in seminary. But praise God, I am in a church where we have elders who value giving guys that opportunity. So I want to say thank you to the elders. I also want to say thank you to my my church. I left two years ago in a truck by myself to go to seminary, but I didn't actually go alone because I've had all of you praying for me, encouraging me, supporting me, and coming home is always a real delight for me. So thank you to all of you. It's kind of hard to believe two years have gone by so quickly. I was leaving two years ago, and now it seems like all of a sudden here we are, and it's just a few days. You're going to have to try to remember to write 2020 on everything rather than 2019. And with the new year comes new goals, new resolutions, new things that you want to achieve, ways that you want to improve. Some people commit to losing weight, getting in shape, reading more. Maybe you want to read your Bible more. Other people say they want to get, spend more time with the family or more time in prayer. These are all excellent resolutions. They're all excellent goals to have for the new year. But I, I would like to recommend a New Year's resolution for everyone, one that we can all get behind. Let us resolve to be more holy in 2020. Regardless of how holy or perhaps unholy 2019 may have been, resolve this morning that this year, 2020, will be a year of personal growth in holiness. That in 2020, you will grow in your hatred of your sin. You will grow in your love for righteousness. You will grow in your repentance from the sins that plagued you in 2019. That you will separate from all that displeases God and that you will draw closer to God through Christ in 2020. This is a resolution every Christian should be willing to embrace because holiness is not an option. God didn't put holiness out there and said, well, if you would like to be holy, you can. God's requirement is that you be holy. J.C. Ryle in his book, Holiness, said this, I maintain that believers are eminently responsible and under special obligation to live holy lives. They are not as others, dead and blind and unrenewed. They are alive unto God and have light and knowledge and a new principle within them. If you are a Christian, you have been saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Christ redeemed you. He set you free from the curse of sin. He set you free from the command and the power of sin. He has indwelt you with his Holy Spirit. And all of that was done so that you would, in fact, be holy. And J.C. Ryle's argument is, because of what God has done, you now have a greater obligation to be holy. Ryle continues, Whose fault is it that they are not holy, but their own? On whom can they throw the blame if they are not sanctified, but themselves? God, who has given them grace and a new heart and a new nature, has deprived them of all excuse if they do not live for his praise. You won't be perfect in this life. Even Paul said, not that I have obtained already or that I have become perfect, but he said, but I press on, I keep on striving. You were saved for the purpose of holiness. In Ephesians 1, verse 4, Paul says, The Father chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. And why did God choose you? Why did God elect you to salvation? 
so that we would be holy and blameless before him. Your election to salvation was for the expressed purpose that you would be holy and blameless. And when Paul spoke of the church in Ephesians 5, he said, Jesus Christ gave himself up for the church so that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory that she would be holy and blameless. It's not an option. Holiness is a basic expectation. Peter actually quotes the book of Leviticus in 1 Peter 1. He says, Be holy yourselves also in all of your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Holiness is the theme of the entire book of Leviticus. The nation of Israel, like you, had been elected by God's sovereign grace. Deuteronomy 7 makes clear they weren't chosen by God because they were greater or bigger or better than the other nations. They were chosen simply because God is gracious. And God delivered them from the hand of Egypt. He delivered them, or as Exodus 6 says, he redeemed them from the hand of Pharaoh and he took them into the wilderness for one purpose, that they would be his people. They had a relationship with God, not because of who they are, but because of who God is, and God chose to establish a relationship with them. And the condition of that relationship, as a result of that relationship, they were to be holy. Leviticus 20, verse 26. Thus you are to be holy to me, for I am the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. If you belong to Christ, if you belong to God, holiness is an absolute necessity. So much so that the Bible says, if you are not growing in holiness, your salvation is fictitious. Hebrews 12, verse 14, Pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Rephrase that. Pursue peace with all men, and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. If you are not growing in holiness, you are not on your way to heaven. So the question this morning is, are you living a holy life? Are you growing in holiness? Do you have a desire for a more more holy life? Do you want to grow in your holiness? In Leviticus 10, 1-5, you will see three principles that you can remember in order to live a more holy life. Three principles that will help you live a more holy life. Let's look at the first principle. The first principle in order to live a more holy life, remember that God cares about the little things. God cares about the little things. Look at verse 1. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective firepans, and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Notice Moses begins with, now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron. Aaron was the brother of Moses. Aaron was selected by God as the high priest, and his four sons were chosen by God to serve with him. Out of roughly two million people in Israel at this time, only these five were set apart for this task. Exodus 28, verse 1. Then bring near to yourself Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the sons of Israel to minister as priests to me. Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, Aaron's sons. These five have been set apart from the rest of the nation. Their unique position 
is best illustrated by the robes that they are going to be wearing, the tunics that they are going to wear. The rest of Exodus 28, God lists in explicit detail exactly how he wants their robes, their priestly garments to be made. The first seven chapters of the book of Leviticus go into a great detail, into explicit detail, how the priests are to offer sacrifices. Every detail is mentioned. In Leviticus chapter 8, they put on their garments, they are anointed, they are consecrated. Moses makes a sacrifice to atone for their sins. If you look at chapter 8, verse uh, 34, The Lord has commanded to do as has been done this day to make atonement on your behalf. Everything that has been done from the making of your garments right down to the consecration has been done because God commanded it. Now look at verse 35 of chapter 8. At the doorway of the tent of meeting, moreover, you shall remain day and night for seven days and keep the charge of the Lord so that you will not die. The seriousness of the work couldn't be explained any more clearly. If you do not keep the charge of the Lord, it will result in your death. If you do not do what God commands, you will die. Chapter 9, the now newly consecrated and robed priests are going to make the very first offerings of the Levitical priesthood. And again, he goes into great detail, giving you every little step. The very steps he just gave in the first seven chapters of Leviticus, he repeats all of them just so you know that Aaron followed it to the T. I want you to start, look at chapter 9, verse 23. Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. That would be the, the perimeter that's around the tabernacle. When they came out, And blessed the people, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Then fire came out from from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their face. God's response to the first sacrifices of the Levitical priesthood was one of approval. His presence was manifested there in Israel. He lit the fire that consumed the offering, not the priest. And it's in this context that we find our passage this morning. It's right after the presence of God showed up in the heart of Israel. The people fall on their face, they're fearful, and I have to imagine that fear eventually turned into absolute joy. He really is with us. Moses wasn't kidding. God really is going to dwell with us here in the wilderness. And then we get to chapter 10 verse 1 it says Nadab and Abihu took their respective firepans they each took a firepan literally each one of them grabbed a firepan a firepan was just a bronze or a gold dish that you would put hot coals in and then you would put incense on top of the coals and they that's exactly what they did verse 1 they put fire in them placed incense on it and offered strange fire there are a lot of theories on what this term means. It's, this is the only context we find the term strange fire. It's not used anywhere else. And so there's several different views on what this means. I'm going to go through some of these pretty quick. But one view says that this is referring to the priest being intoxicated, that they were drunk. 
And the reason people say that is they look down at verse 9 and says, Do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you, when you come into the tent of meeting. And so they say, well, that means Nadab and Abihu were drunk. The problem with that is in chapter 10, verse 1, he says nothing about being intoxicated. The problem here is not with the condition of the priest. The problem here is with the fire. So I think we can do away with that one. There's another view that says that the incense that they offered was wrong. That they went and grabbed the wrong incense and they offered that. And again, we have a simple problem here. That's not what he said in verse 1. He said the problem here is with the fire. Another view says it was the wrong people making the offering. That it was Aaron who was supposed to go in and make the offering. And they get that from Leviticus chapter 16. Um, Flip over to Leviticus 16. I just want to show it to you real quick. Verse 12. He shall take a fire pan full of coals of the fire from upon the altar from, uh, uh, before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground sweet incense and bring it inside the veil. So the tent of meeting has a perimeter. It's a rectangle fence line, right? You go inside and the first thing you come to is a large altar for burning sacrifices. Right behind that is a basin with water so the priest can wash and then right behind that is the tent or the tabernacle. On the Day of Atonement, Aaron, the high priest, would go into the tabernacle, pierce the veil, go into the Holy of Holies, and he would offer sacrifices on behalf of the entire nation. And that's why it says, bring it inside the veil. Go into the tabernacle, go into the Holy of Holies. Leviticus 10, we can go back to Leviticus 10, is not discussing the Day of Atonement. Nadab and Abihu didn't go into the tabernacle. They were inside the tent of meeting by the altar of burnt offering. So the problem here is not who was making the offering. And again, Leviticus 10.1, the problem is with the strange fire. That term, strange fire, literally in the Hebrew means unauthorized, unauthorized fire. Or as it says later in verse 1, which he had not commanded him. The problem with the offering is the fire was not approved by God. That is, God didn't command them to use that fire. So how can that be? This, this seems to indicate that Nadab and Abihu took coals from the wrong place. Whenever we have a description of incense being offered to God, the coals are always said to come from the same place, the altar of burnt offering, the altar that the fire came down and consumed the offering in chapter 9, is the fire that God himself lit. It is from that location and that location only that they are to grab the coals. This is said uh, explicitly in Numbers 16, verse 46. Take your censer and put fire from the altar and lay incense on it. The coals were to be taken from the altar of burnt offering and nowhere else. The problem with Nadab and Behu's offering was not the people who were offering it, the time that it was being offered, the incense that was being offered, or the condition of the priest. What was the problem here? They got coals from the wrong spot. They went to their campfire instead of the altar. That's it. That was the problem. Notice it doesn't even say that the coals didn't work. 
It doesn't say that they put coals in the pan, they put incense on top of it, and it didn't burn. There was nothing defective about the coals they used. The only problem was they didn't get the coals from the right place. They used coals which God had not commanded them. Seems like such a little thing, doesn't it? Seems so minor. And it's little rules like this that Christians don't follow. And it prevents them from living holy lives. They take certain aspects of God's law and say, well, that's not important for me. Nadab and Abihu went into, the, went into make an offering and they thought they could just worship God their way. They're all excited. They're all happy about this. And they just go in there and they do it their way. You can't worship God your way. All worship is according to what God desires. And if you're not worshiping to please God, then you're not actually worshiping God. You're worshiping yourself, you're worshiping money, you're worshiping something else. And it's obeying the little rules, obeying those little things that really make the difference in living a holy life. If you want to live holy in 2020, you need to remember that God cares about those little things. And because he cares about it, you should care about it. Luke 16.10, he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. If you won't obey the little commands, why do you think you'll be able to resist the temptation to disobey the big ones? If you even accept that category. A life that is marked and dominated by sin, that is an unholy life, is the result not of major deviations from God's law, but a whole bunch of little deviations. Little wanderings away where you say, well, I'm just not going to do it God's way here. I'm going to do it my way. Unholy living results from, one, a neglect of the spiritual disciplines. Prayer, scripture, meditation, fellowship, singing hymns. They count it as a little thing. They say, well, I'm not going to read my Bible this morning because I just don't feel like it. And God will be okay with it because it's just a minor thing. Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctification is through the word. David said, I have hidden, my, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin. Peter says that we should be like newborn babes who long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. If you count the word of God as a little thing and that being in the word is just a little thing that you can ignore, you're not going to be growing in holiness. Peter compares you to a newborn baby. What happens if you don't feed a newborn baby? Are they real happy with you afterwards? What, what about a three or four-year-old when they become hungry? Are they real patient? Do they sit there patiently waiting? No. They want it now. And there's no way you're going to get to distract them to go do something else until you feed them. And God says, no, that's how you should be in desiring the word of God. The spirit of God should drive and compel you to desire the pure milk of the word of God. Peter says, so that by it you may grow. If you want to grow in holiness in 2020, don't neglect that little thing of being in the word each and every day. You want to know why people suffer with spiritual lethargy? They have no motivation, no drive, no desire. 
You want to know why people lack the strength to resist temptation? It's because you're spiritually malnourished. You're not eating enough. If you come in today and say, well, I'm really tired today, I have no energy. And I say, well, when was the last time you ate? You said last week. Hello, that's why you're, go eat something, you'll feel better. People who live unholy lives count being in the word as a little thing. Something I can just dismiss. They don't read it, they don't meditate on it, they don't memorize it. They don't go to hear preaching, teaching on the word. And this closely connects with fellowship. If you count fellowship with other believers as a little thing, coming and gathering with the saints as something you can just dismiss. You know, the early church, they viewed fellowship and the gathering of other believers as a necessity. Acts 2.42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. When the church gathers, she sets her mind and her heart to hearing and understanding the word of God. Paul spoke of fellowship with other believers in Colossians 1. And what did he say the focus was in fellowship? Colossians 1.28, We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete, mature, holy in Christ. I added mature and holy in Christ. Admonishing every man. The word word deals with intense one-on-one discipleship. You might say counseling every man. If you neglect the little thing of fellowshipping with the saints, if you skip church just because, well, I don't feel so great this morning, you're you're depriving yourself of the encouragement, the admonishment that one-to-one fellowship with other believers provides. Not only do you suffer, but your brothers and sisters in Christ also suffer because you're not around around them to admonish, encourage, and help them grow seem like such little things. Just showing up to church on Sunday, reading your Bible. What is another thing that gets neglected? Something small. Tolerance of little sin. Sins that have no obvious or immediate consequences. Sins that occur in the heart. Harboring anger, resentment, unforgiveness, impure thoughts, perverted desires. One well-known religious leader recently said, it's okay if clergy have homosexual desire, just as long as they don't act on it. That's where false religion stops. They stop on the outward behavior. But Jesus focused on the heart. What's going on inside of you? What's going on in your mind that nobody else can see? What's that little thing? Paul said in Titus 2, we are to deny worldly desires. In Colossians 3, 5, he described other desires as being evil. False religion has nothing to say about those desires. They don't even care if you deal with them or not. But Jesus said, if you harbor anger in your heart, you are guilty of murder. Jesus said, if you look and lust, it doesn't matter who you're looking at, and it doesn't matter who you're lusting after, if you look and lust, you are guilty of adultery. And Colossians 3.8, he gives a list, and that list starts from the inward manifestation, anger, and it works to the outward manifestation. 
anger becomes bitterness, bitterness becomes resentment, and that explodes in emotional rage, or what the Bible calls wrath. And that wrath leads to abuse of speech and slander. You ignore that little thing of what's going on in your heart, and you will fail to stop the big one. You can't ignore those little things. Paul said in Ephesians 4, do not let the sun go down in your anger. Do not give the devil an opportunity. When you allow that little sin to remain, you open up the door for a whole plethora of other sins come rushing in and other temptations. One more. Refusing to amputate and remove all stumbling blocks that lead you back to sin. Jesus said, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. He wasn't talking about self-mutilation, but he was talking about ruthless amputation. And yet, Christians refuse to be ruthless. Paul said, make no provision for the flesh. Unholy lives are marked by people who make endless provisions for the comfort and the desires of their flesh. They'll hold on to relationships and people who tempt them into sinful behavior because, well, I just don't want to lose a friend. They refuse to get rid of movies or television programs that fill their mind with things that God hates and causes them to turn and think about sinful things. If you want to defeat sin, if you want to live a holy life, you need to be ruthless with anything that leads you back to sin. Cut them off, no matter how small. Remove the stumbling block. And this is a continual process. You're not going to finish it anytime soon. It's a day-in, day-out process. But if you want to live a holy life, you need to remember that God cares about those little things. There are those of you here this morning that you are striving on those little things. You are focusing on being obedient in every detail, but as hard as you seem to try, it just seems like it's never enough. You're in the Word every day, but it seems like you just don't spend enough time. You don't have enough devotion. You look at your prayer life and you say, I give so little, my prayers are so defective and meager. I lose focus, I'm distracted, my time in the Word is so deficient. He deserves so much more. And it all adds up to you thinking that God is disappointed and displeased with you. Can I tell you something? God cares about the little things. He cares about those little acts of faithfulness. He loves when his children are faithful, even in the small things. I didn't read all of Luke 16.10 a minute ago. The rest of it says he was faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. Your prayer life, my prayer life will never be what it should be. We will never be perfect. But just like the parent of a small child, your small, weak, imperfect acts of love, even when they're coated in sin, are a treasure to your Father in heaven. They're not a treasure to Him because you and I are so wonderful. They're a treasure to him because you have a great high priest, an intercessor seated at the right hand of God who takes even those horrible drawings and he makes them into masterpieces that the Father loves and approves of. Galatians 6, 9, let us not lose heart in doing good for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. To live a more holy life in 2020, remember that God cares about those little things. Don't be like Nadab and Abihu who ignored the little thing. 
God's displeasure with Nadab and Abihu is rather obvious. If you look at verse 2, And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. The opening phrase, fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed, is the exact same phrase he said in 9.24, when the fire came out and consumed the offering. In 9.24, God was expressing his pleasure with the sacrifice. In 10.2, God is expressing his absolute hatred for what the priests have done. Notice it says the fire came out literally from the presence of the Lord or from the face of Yahweh. This idea of being in the face of Yahweh is repeated four times in four verses. 9.24, 10.1, and twice in 10.2. Nadab and Abihu had ignored the express commands of God. And I want you to think about this idea of doing it in God's face, literally right in front of them, blatantly ignoring what God had said. And every time we ignore some small aspect of what God has said, what he has called us to do, what he has called us to be, we sin against God and we do it to his face. Because he indwells each of us. And God's response in Adab and Abihu was severe. Looking in at verse 2, he says, He consumed them, and they died before the Lord. You don't need to take consumed to mean that they were turned into a pile of ashes. The word there just literally means to be destroyed. It's used of things like heat or famine and pestilence of the jaws of the oppressor. It just describes something that is destroyed or killed. It is only to say that they died there. God executed divine judgment. They were killed by a direct act of God, and just like their sin, they died in the face of Yahweh. So why did God do this? Why kill two high-profile priests? More than that, why kill the sons of the high priest? Why kill the nephews of Moses? And then why do it in front of everybody? All two million people. This brings us to our second principle to remember in order to live a more holy life in 2020. Remember that God will demonstrate his holiness. Look at verse 3. Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. We don't have a record of this being actually said anywhere in Scripture. This is the only place this phrase, this statement occurs. But Moses records it as coming directly from God. And I want you to focus just on one phrase for now. By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. The phrase literally says, come near me, I will demonstrate that I am holy. God is going to put his holiness on display. He's going to prove to all those who approach that he is in fact holy. And when God proves he is holy then the people are going to treat him as such. The demonstration of his holiness is to change the behavior of the people. And when they see that he is holy, they will fear him and they will respect him as he ought to be feared and respected. So how how is God going to do this? How is he going to prove that he is holy? He's going to prove that he's holy by killing Nadab and Abihu, and he's going to do it in front of the entire nation of Israel. 
He's going to kill these two priests that he had just consecrated, that he had just set aside, that he had just called for service. He's going to kill both of them, and he's going to do it in front of the entire nation of Israel. He's going to do it in front of Moses, and he's going to do it in front of their father. The judgment that God brings demonstrates that God is, in fact, holy, completely separate from sin. God hates those who practice iniquity. Psalm 11.5 says that, in the one who loves violence, his soul hates. And then he talks about the judgment he will bring on the wicked. Look again at verse 3. He says, and before all the people, I will be honored. The word for honor here is the Hebrew word kavod. It simply means to be weighty. Something is heavy. And when it's used figuratively of a, of a person, it refers to someone who is in society, someone who is honorable, impressive, worthy of respect. Here's the message from God. When I demonstrate that I am holy through judgment, you will recognize that I am someone that should be feared and respected. And all the people in Israel will treat me that way. God is to be worshipped, honored, feared, because of the weightiness, the magnitude, and the greatness of his nature. And apparently, God got his point across. Look at the end of verse 3. So Aaron, therefore kept silent. He just watched his two sons die. This is an interesting contrast to the story of Uzzah. You remember Uzzah, the, the Levitical priest? God told him, don't touch the ark. And they've got the ark on the back of an ox cart. And the ark is about to slide off, and Uzzah reaches out and stops it and steadies the ark. And what did God do? God killed him for it. He Dropped dead right there. And it says David became very angry. David didn't get it. Aaron gets it. He wasn't happy about his two sons dying. But he understood God is holy and those who are going to approach him, those who are going to serve him, must treat him as being holy. And to embrace any sin, to embrace any disobedience, even small sins. To be flippant in your obedience or to refuse to cut off some known sin is to put God to the test. It's to demand that God would demonstrate that he is holy to you. To tempt him and to bring judgment upon you. And people say, well, you know, God won't consume me with fire like he did Nadab and Abihu. I mean, that's the God of the Old Testament. The God of the New Testament doesn't kill people like that. Ananias and Sapphira would disagree. God still brings judgment for sin. Paul, in 1 Corinthians, even says, some of you have fallen sick and some of you have died. Hebrews 12, 6. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. If you're a Christian, God's going to judge you and he's going to bring his discipline upon you. If you grieve his spirit, he will chasten you. He will discipline you. After David sinned with Bathsheba, he murdered her husband Uriah. And he waited almost a year before he did anything about it, before he went to the Lord about it. 
Listen to what he said happened to him when he refused to repent. Psalm 32, verse 3. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through groaning all day. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality, my life juices was drained up as with the fever heat of summer. Later in Psalm 51, he pleaded with God, Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. The discipline of God, David compared to his life juices draining up and his bones breaking. Sounds painful. Immense pain and suffering. Because God is going to demonstrate that he is holy to those who refuse to obey. Have you grieved his spirit through sin? Is there a sin that only you and God know about? Are you harboring those little ones? Can you say with David, God's hand is heavy upon me right now? God will bring his hand of discipline upon you. He will rob you of your peace. He'll rob you of your joy. He'll rob you of your assurance. He'll rob you of your desire for the word and for prayer. Your prayer life will feel like you're bouncing your prayers off the ceiling. Learn from David. Psalm 32, verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. If God's hand is heavy upon you, if you are experiencing the disciplining of God, do not wait. Do not say, well, I'll deal with it later. No, deal with it now. His mercies are renewed every morning. Run back to him. Confess it. Confess every little detail. Be honest with him about it. And beg for mercy. And you'll find out that his loving kindness really is everlasting. If you want to be more holy in 2020, remember that God will demonstrate his holiness. He will prove his holiness by his discipline. Now some in this room may not know what I'm talking about. And I mean that you may not know it in a practical way. You sin and you only feel guilty or remorse when someone catches you. Or there's some consequence on this world. And if you never get caught, you don't think twice about it. Lie, cheat, steal, do whatever you want. You don't feel it. And you say, well, that's okay because, you know, God must not care. No, no, no. You need to remember that God will demonstrate his holiness. And if you do not experience his discipline in this life for your sin, if you can just run off into sin and it never bother you, and you never feel anything from it, you are not a Christian. You're not his. Hebrews 12, verse 7, but if you are without discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. There's a lot of fathers in this church, and I've seen some of the fathers here discipline their children. I've never seen a father in this church go and discipline somebody else's child. The father in heaven does not discipline children that are not his. And if he is not disciplining you now for your sin, then Romans 2 applies to you, where it says, you are storing up wrath for the day of wrath. God is not demonstrating his holiness to you now. He will demonstrate it to you in eternity. 
the God who is a consuming fire will pour out his vengeance upon all those who do not receive his discipline here. Is that you? There is one who has paid that penalty for you, who has suffered that wrath in your place. And if you would just turn to him, if you would just trust in Christ, and if you would just plead with him, he would take that penalty for you so you do not have to bear that wrath. If you want to live more holy in 2020, remember that God cares about those little things. Remember that God will demonstrate his holiness. And thirdly, remember that God does not have favorites. Look at verses 4 and 5. Moses called also Demishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Aaron's uncle Uzziel, and said to them, Come forward, carry your relatives away from the front of the sanctuary to the outside of the camp. So they came forward and carried them, still in their tunics, to the outside of the camp, as Moses had said. Mishael and Elzaphan are the cousins. They're direct relatives. They are the sons of Aaron's uncle. So they are cousins to Aaron. So this kind of brings a question, why have these two guys do it? Why not the other two sons of Aaron? Well, that's because the other two sons are also priests. And if they were to go and touch a dead body, they wouldn't be able to serve in the tabernacle anymore, so they couldn't do it. So the cousins were called to do the task. But again, we have to ask, why does Moses, why does the Holy Spirit want us to know that the cousins came? Why does it matter that the family members had to remove the bodies? He could have just said, I called some of the other Levites to come and get them. I think this sends a clear message. God looked at the family of Aaron and said, look, your relationship with the high priest doesn't exempt you from the demand to holiness. Your genealogy, your lineage does not make you God's favorite. It doesn't permit you to violate God's law simply because you are part of the Levites or because you have some relation to Aaron. And if God is willing to kill these two high-profile priests, these two priests, the sons of Aaron, if he's willing to judge them and demonstrate his holiness to them, why should anyone in Israel think he won't do it to them? You this morning, who profess to have been united to the great high priest, Jesus Christ, you are not exempt from the demand for holiness. Your salvation in Christ doesn't exempt you. It qualifies and enables you to holiness. You are more responsible to live a holy life. You are under greater obligation because you have been given all, what, all that is necessary to live a holy life. You are not God's favorite special child who is exempt from the rules. God has no favorites. He will demonstrate his holiness to you too. Don't presume on God's forgiveness. I think of Ephesians 5.5 5 where Paul says, This you know with certainty. And then he says, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's repeated, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, Colossians 3. Those who continue on in sin, those who live unholy lives, will not stand before God. And that includes everyone that is here this morning.
And people then say, well, what about the perseverance of the saints? I mean, once saved, always saved, right? If you use the perseverance of the saints as a justification for sin, you're on the first step to apostasy. Perseverance of the saints does not say you can just move on and continue on in your sin and live like Jesus didn't give you a law. Perseverance of the saints says God will preserve you in holiness. Nadab and Abihu were unique in that they were priests. But that doesn't mean they were exempt. They ignored one of those little things, and God demonstrated his holiness to them. And it was a message their immediate family would have understood very, very clearly. Especially as their family members, their cousins, carried their lifeless bodies, look at the end of verse 4, to the outside of the camp. Their bodies would have been taken several miles from the camp of Israel. They would have been buried in unmarked graves. Those graves would have been covered with stones. And there would have been a marking, not to tell you who was there, only to tell you that if you are a Jew and you approach this grave, you will become unclean. There, they have been permanently, physically separated from their kinsmen, from their families, and from the presence of God. Also notice in verse 5, they were still in their tunics. These are the priestly garments that we saw the description in Exodus 28. These are the garments that were applied in Leviticus 8. But those priestly garments that set them aside, that made them unique and distinct in the nation of Israel, were not enough if they were not holy. You can't serve God while living an unholy life. You can't continue on in sin and think that God will continue to use you in whatever aspect you desire to be used. There are some here today, you, you want God to use you. He, you want God to use you to bring the gospel to family members and friends. You want God to use you as you raise your children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. You want him to empower your evangelism or some other aspect of ministry that you decide to serve in. Look, you can dress nice, you can sound good, you can talk the talk, you can carry a 10-pound MacArthur study Bible. But if you have not set yourself apart from the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the sinful pride of life, God will not use you for any of it. 2 Timothy 2.21 Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself... From these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Pastor preached on good works that God had established beforehand that you should walk in them. Holiness is how you can be prepared for those. And again, we're not talking perfection. We're talking direction here. Do you want to be used by your master? Do you want to complete the work that God has given you to do in this life? Would you like to do something of eternal weight and significance that will survive this world? If so, you need to pursue holiness. You need to remember that you're not special. God has no favorites. You're not exempt. And just like their tunics, your status in a church, your position in ministry, your giving, your service... In the church, 
will not exempt you from the demand for holiness. Holiness is a prerequisite to usefulness. And when you do not live a holy life, you only harm yourself because you incur God's discipline. You tempt him to force you, for, you tempt him into demonstrating his holiness to you. But you also harm everyone else in the church. Because now your brothers and sisters do not get to benefit from the gifting and the spiritual gifts that God has given you. You won't be used to exhort them and edify them and encourage them. You won't be used to help them grow in holiness. And so your brothers and sisters that you fellowship with will also suffer. Because you choose to ignore those little things. You think God doesn't care about them. If you want to be more holy in 2020, remember God cares about those little things. And you should too. If you want to be more holy in 2020, remember that God will demonstrate his holiness. He will discipline you, either in this life or the next, if you do not live holy. And you need to remember that God has no favorites. And I need to close with this. Everything we've discussed is a demand for Christians. People who have submitted their life to Christ people who do not trust in themselves, the, the path to holiness is not looking at you. Yes, you're required to do something, but the path to holiness is through Christ and only Him. And so if you are not a believer this morning, if you have not trusted in Christ, this is not for you. You cannot be holy. You need to repent and you need to turn to Christ and you need to do so today because you are not guaranteed a tomorrow. And on the other side of that last breath, God will demonstrate his holiness to you. Let's pray. Father, you are in fact holy. You are perfectly set aside from sin. There is no darkness in you. And you know the desire of every Christian in this room is to be more holy. And we will fail you more often than not. But you are always faithful. You are always faithful to us. You will always preserve us. And Father, you know those individuals in this room who do not know Christ, who have no hope of holiness. And we just ask that you would open their hearts and call them by your grace to trust in Christ. And we ask that you would help us as a church to be more holy. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.